Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Richard Kuklinski is one of the most dangerous criminals we have ever come across in this state. He murdered by guns, he murdered by strangulation, he murdered by putting poison on victims' food. He did all of this at the same time while exhibiting a normal, placid family existence. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Richard Kuklinski. Richard Leonard Kuklinski, also known as the Iceman, was an American criminal and convicted murderer. Kuklinski was engaged in criminal activities for most of his adult life. He ran a burglary ring and distributed pirated pornography. Kuklinski killed several people he lured with offers of a business deal so that he could rob them of their cash. Law enforcement officials described him as someone who killed for profit. Kuklinski lived with his wife and children in the New Jersey suburb of Dumont. They knew him as a loving father and husband, but one who also had a violent temper, which we will get into later. They stated that they were unaware of his crimes. He was given the moniker Iceman by authorities after they discovered that he had frozen the body of one of his victims in an attempt to disguise the time of death. Eventually, Kuklinski came to the attention of law enforcement when an investigation into his burglary gang linked him to several murders. An 18-month-long undercover investigation led to his arrest in December of 1986. In 1988, he was sentenced to life imprisonment after being convicted of killing two members of his burglary gang and two other associates. In 2003, he received an additional 30-year sentence after confessing to the murder of a mob-connected police officer, a gang which we'll get into. After his murder convictions, Kuklinski gave interviews to writers, prosecutors, criminologists, and psychiatrists. He claimed to have murdered anywhere from one to 200 men, often in gruesome fashion. Most of these additional murders have not been corroborated. He also alleged that he worked as a hitman for the Mafia, and that he was a participant in several famous Mafia killings, including the disappearance and presumed murder of Teamsters president Jimmy Hoffa. Law enforcement and organised crime experts have expressed scepticism about Kuklinski's supposed Mafia ties. He was the subject of three HBO documentaries aired in 1992, 2001, and 2003, several biographies, and a 2012 feature film The Iceman, starring Michael Shannon and Winona Ryder. Now, Richard Kuklinski was born on April 11th of 1935 in his family's apartment on 4th Street in Jersey City, New Jersey, to Stanslow Stanley Kuklinski, who was born in 1906 and died in 1977. He was described as a Polish immigrant from, and I'm going to butcher this name, I do apologize, Kawak's Masovian Vivadisha, who worked as a brakeman on the Delaware, Lackawanna, and Western Railroad. And his mother was Anna McNally. She was born 1911, died 1972. She was from Harismas, a daughter of Catholic Irish immigrants from Dublin who worked in a meatpacking plant during Richard's childhood. He was the second of four children. Now, according to Richard Kuklinski, Stanley Kuklinski was a violent alcoholic who beat his children regularly and sometimes beat his wife. Stanley abandoned the family home while Richard was still a child, but returned periodically, usually drunk, and his returns were often followed by more beatings for Richard. Anna was also often quite abusive. She would beat Richard with broom handles, sometimes breaking the handle on his body during the assaults and other household objects. He recalled an incident during his preteen years when his mother attempted to kill Stanley with a kitchen knife. Anna was a zealous Catholic and believed that stern discipline should be accompanied by a strict religious upbringing the same way she was raised. She raised her son in the Roman Catholic Church where he became an altar boy. Kuklinski later rejected Catholicism. Kuklinski also regarded his mother as a cancer who destroyed everything she touched. What's the worst beating you ever took from your old man? (laughs) 
And I don't think there's much difference in any of them. They were all pretty bad. He uh, left his mark on me, pretty much. And he did most of that before you were, what, 11? Yes, I was young. And was that worse when he was drinking? With Stanley, it didn't really matter whether he was drinking or he wasn't drinking. He was a nasty son of a bitch, and he always will be until the day he died. And he, when he died, he was a nasty son of a gun. Did you go to his funeral? No, I didn't. Was there one? Yes. I didn't like him in life. Why would I want to go see him in death? I was glad he was dead. How about your mom? How was she? Over the years, I got to dislike my mother a great deal. But now that I have more time to think about it, she was just a victim of her own life. As a kid, how did you see her? Hateful. Disliked her a great deal. She didn't believe in uh, sparing a rod either. I mean, she used to hit me with a uh, broomstick if I did something wrong. Where would she hit you? Where would it hit? His father's beatings were apparently so rough that they killed Kuklinski's older brother, who authorities were told fell down the stairs. Kuklinski had three siblings. Kuklinski's brother Joseph, who was born in 1944 and who died in 2003, was convicted in 1970 of raping a 12-year-old girl and murdering her by throwing her off the top of a five-story building, along with her pet dog. When asked about his brother's crimes, Kuklinski replied, and I quote, we came from the same father, end quote. In the eighth grade, he dropped out of school, and that same year, he beat a local bully to death with the pole and buried him in the woods when he was just 14 years old. So now we're going to get into Kuklinski's earlier crimes that were in the early part of his criminal career. So in the mid-1960s, Kuklinski worked at a Manhattan film lab. Through the lab, he accessed master copies of popular films and he made bootleg copies of Disney animated films to sell. Kuklinski also discovered a lucrative market for tapes of pornographic movies. Copying and distributing pornography was a regular source of income for him. He was once arrested for passing a bad check the only crime he was charged with prior to his arrest for murder. He was photographed and fingerprinted, but the charges were dropped after he agreed to pay back the money owed. Several of his known murder victims were men he met through trafficking, pornography, and drugs. He also headed a burglary group with Gary Smith, Barbara Deppner, Daniel Deppner, and Percy House. Now, even though Kuklinski was a murderer, he did have rules, although there were only two, and they were no woman and no children. Beyond that, anything was fair game to him. Now we're going to get into some of the canonical known victims that Kuklinski killed. So the first of these canonical murders was the murder of George Maliband. So on January 30th of 1980, Kuklinski killed George Maliband during a meeting to sell him tapes. Maliband was reportedly carrying $27,000 at the time. After a plea bargain, Kuklinski admitted to shooting him five times, explaining and I quote, it was due to business. Maliband's body was discovered a week later on February 5th of 1980. Kuklinski had placed him in a 55 five-gallon drum and left it near the Chemitex chemical plant in Jersey City. He had to cut the tendons of Malaban's leg in order to fit the corpse into the barrel. This was the first murder linked to Kuklinski. Malaban's brother told the police officers Malaban was meeting Kuklinski the day he disappeared. Then we come to the murder of Paul Hoffman. So in 1982, Kuklinski met Paul Hoffman, a 51-year-old pharmacist who occasionally browsed the store in Patterson, New Jersey. Now, the store, as I understand it, was a storefront with a back room holding a wide variety of stolen items for sale and purchase. Now, Hoffman had hoped to make a big profit by purchasing stolen Tagamet, which I've never heard of, which apparently is a popular drug to treat peptic ulcers to resell through his pharmacy. He believed Kuklinski could supply the drugs and badgered him to make a deal. Hoffman was last seen on his way to meet Kuklinski with $25,000 to buy his prescription drugs from Kuklinski. Now, after a plea bargain, Kuklinski admitted to killing Hoffman on April 29th of 1982. He stated that he lured Hoffman into a rented garage and tried to shoot him, but the gun jammed. So in 
Instead, he beat Hoffman to death with a tire iron. He said that he then stuffed the body into a 55-gallon drum and left it outside a motel in Little Ferry. Now, here's a little wrinkle to this, this story that no one's ever gotten to the bottom of, although a lot of people have tried. One day, Kuklinski noticed that the drum had disappeared, but never learned what happened to it. Hoffman's body was never recovered. We move on to the murder of Gary Smith. So by the early 1980s, Kuklinski's burglary gang was under investigation by law enforcement. In December of 1982, Percy House, a member of the gang, was arrested. House agreed to inform on Kuklinski and was placed in protective custody. Warrants were also issued for the arrest of two other gang members, Gary Smith and Daniel Deppner. Now, Kuklinski urged them to lay low and rented them a room at the York Motel in North Bergen, New Jersey. Smith left the motel to visit his daughter, and Kuklinski feared that Smith, after he discussed going straight, might become an informant. According to the testimony of Barbara Deppner, Kuklinski, Daniel Deppner, and House, who was in jail at the time, decided that Smith had to be killed. Kuklinski fed Smith a hamburger lace with cyanide, but when this was slow to work, Daniel Deppner also strangled Smith with a lamp cord. According to forensic pathologist Michael Baden, Smith's death would probably have been attributed to something non-homicidal in nature, such as a drug overdose, if Kuklinski relied solely on the poison. However, the ligature mark around Smith's neck and the fact the body had been deliberately hidden proved to investigators that he was murdered. After Barbara Deppner did not return with a car to move Smith's body, Kuklinski and Daniel Deppner placed it in between the mattress and box spring. Over the next four days, a number of patrons rented the room, and although they thought the smell in the room was odd, most of them did not think to look under the bed. Finally, on December 27th of 1982, after more complaints from guests about the smell, the motel manager investigated and discovered the decomposing corpse. Then there was the murder of Daniel Deppner. So, after Smith's murder, Kuklinski moved Deppner to an apartment in Bergenfield, New Jersey, belonging to Rich Patterson, then fiancé of Kuklinski's daughter Merrick. Patterson was away at the time, but Kuklinski possessed keys to the apartment. Between February and May of 1983, Deppner was killed by Kuklinski. Now, investigators deduced he was murdered in Patterson's apartment after discovering a bloody carpet. Kuklinski enlisted Patterson's help to dispose of Deppner's body, telling Patterson the victim was a friend in trouble with law enforcement and someone had broken in and killed him over the weekend. He added it was best to dump the body to avoid trouble with the police, then forget about the incident. Kuklinski made another mistake when he informed an associate that he killed Deppner. Deppner's corpse was discovered May 14th of 1983 after a bicyclist riding Clinton Road in a wooded area of West Milford, New Jersey, spotted the corpse surrounded by vultures. Kuklinski wrapped the corpse inside green garbage bags before dumping it. Medical examiners listed Deppner's cause of death as undetermined, although they noticed pinkish spots on his skin, a possible sign of cyanide poisoning. Deppner was also strangled. Investigators guessed that Deppner had already been incapacitated, such as by poison, because the partially eaten corpse had no defensive wounds and healthy adult men are rarely killed by strangulation. The medical examiner found Deppner's stomach full of undigested food, indicating that he had died shortly after or during a meal. The beans that Deppner had eaten were burned, so they reasoned the meal was home-cooked, because most restaurants would not get away with serving burned food to customers. Investigating officers discovered the corpse just three miles, or five kilometres, away from the ranch where Kuklinski's family often went horseback riding. Deppner was the third Kuklinski associate to be found dead, but he wasn't to be the last. On September 25th of 1983, the body of Louis Magsgay was discovered near a town park near Clausland Mountain Road in Orange Town, New York, with a bullet hole in the back of his head. Mazgay disappeared over two years earlier, on July 1st of 1981, the day he was to meet Kuklinski at a New Jersey diner to purchase a large quantity of blank video cassette recorder tapes, for which Mazgay had $95,000 in his van to pay for. His body was stored in a freezer, then discovered 15 months later. After another plea bargain, Kuklinski admitted to shooting Mazgay. However, Kuklinski did not thaw the corpse before he dumped it. He also wrapped it in plastic garbage bags, which kept it insulated and partially frozen. The Rockland County Medical Examiner found 
ice crystals inside the body on a swarm September day. If the body had thawed before discovery, the medical examiner stated he probably would never have noticed Kuklinski's trickery. Investigators realized Mazgay was wearing the clothes his wife and son said he was wearing the day he disappeared. The discovery Kuklinski froze Mazgay's corpse encouraged law enforcement officers to nickname him Iceman. Newspaper reporters sensationalized Kuklinski's frequently used moniker of Iceman in headlines. Kuklinski came to the attention of Pat Kane, an officer with the New Jersey State Police, when an informant helped Kane connect him to a gang carrying out burglaries in northern New Jersey. He built a file on him. Eventually, five unsolved homicides, Hoffman, Smith, Deppner, Mazgate, and Malaband, were linked to Kuklinski because he was the last person to see each of them alive. A joint task force of law enforcement officials titled Operation Iceman were created between the New Jersey Attorney General's Office and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms dedicated to arresting and convicting Kuklinski. The ATF was only involved due to Kuklinski's firearms sale. ATF Special Agent Dominic Polifrone went undercover for 18 months to apprehend Kuklinski. Starting in 1985, Kane and Polifrone worked with Phil Solomine, a close, long-time friend of Kuklinski, to get Polifrone close to Kuklinski. Posing as a mafia-connected criminal named Dominic Provenanzo, Polifrone purchased a handgun muffler combination from Kuklinski. In recordings, Kuklinski discussed a corpse he kept in a freezer for two and a half years. He told Polifrone he preferred poison, saying, and I quote, why be messy? You do it nice and calm, end quote. He asked Polifron if he could supply him with pure cyanide. Polifron told Kuklinski he wanted to hire him to murder a wealthy Jewish cocaine dealer and recorded Kuklinski speaking in detail about how he would do it. Kuklinski was also recorded boasting he killed a man by putting cyanide in his hamburger and of his plans to kill a couple of rats, Barbara Deppner and Percy House. On December 17th of 1986, Kuklinski met Polifron to get cyanide for a planned murder, which was to be an attempt on an undercover police officer. After the recorded conversation with Polifron, Kuklinski went for a walk. He tested Polifron's purported cyanide on a stray dog using a hamburger as bait and saw it was not poison. Suspicious, Kuklinski decided to not go through with the planned murder and went home instead. He was arrested at a roadblock two hours later. His wife was charged with disorderly conduct for interfering with his arrest. Officers discovered a firearm in the vehicle and she was charged with, with possession of a firearm because she was a passenger. Now we come to the trial of Richard Kuklinski. So, prosecutors charged Kuklinski with five murder counts and six weapon violations as well as attempted murder, robbery and attempted robbery. Law enforcement officials said Kuklinski had large sums of money in Swiss bank accounts and a reservation on a flight to that country. Kuklinski was held on a $2 million bail bond and made to surrender his passport. After the arrest, Kuklinski told reporters, and I quote, this is unwarranted, unnecessary, these guys watch too many movies, end quote. At a press conference, New Jersey State Attorney General W. Carrie Edwards characterized the motive for the murder as profit and said, and I quote, he set individuals up for business deals. They disappeared and the money ended up in his hands. End quote. At trial, Kuklinski's former associates, including Percy House and Barbara Deppner, gave evidence against him, as did ATF Special Agent Polifron. The case was prosecuted by Deputy Attorney General Robert Carroll, while Kuklinski was represented by a public defender. Kuklinski's lawyer argued Kuklinski had no history of violence and only projected a tough image, including his statements to ATF Special Agent Polifron. The defense theorized Deppner was responsible for the murder of Smith, and there was no cause of death determined for Deppner. Additionally, he argued the testimony of House and 
and Barbara Deppner was unreliable because they lied to law enforcement officials, and House received immunity from prosecution. In March of 1988, jurors found Kuklinski guilty of murdering Smith and Deppner, but found the deaths were not proven to be by Kuklinski's conduct, meaning he would not face the death penalty. He was then sentenced to a minimum 60 years in prison. After the trial, Kuklinski pled guilty to killing Mazgate and Malaband. Kuklinski was sentenced to an additional two life sentences to be conserved consecutively. State prosecutors explained he would spend the rest of his life in prison if he had successful appeals to his previous convictions. Kuklinski also confessed to killing Hoffman, but prosecutors decided not to pursue sentencing, claiming additional life sentences would not impact Kuklinski's prison stay. As part of the plea bargains, the firearms charge against his wife and an unrelated marijuana possession charge against his son were dismissed. Kuklinski was ineligible for parole until he was 111 years old, and he was incarcerated at Trenton State Prison. Now, during his incarceration, Kuklinski granted interviews to prosecutors, psychiatrists, criminologists, and writers. Several television producers also spoke to Kuklinski about his criminal career, upbringing, and personal life. These talks culminated in three televised documentaries known as the Iceman Tapes, broadcast on HBO in 1992, 2001, and 2003. According to his daughter Merrick Kuklinski, her mother convinced Richard to do the interviews, and she was paid handsomely, as it's stated, for them. In the last installment, The Iceman and the Psychiatrist, Kuklinski was interviewed by renowned forensic psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz in 2002. Dietz stated he believed Kuklinski suffered from anti-personality disorder plus paranoid personality disorder. Writers Anthony Bruno and Philip Carlo wrote biographies of Kuklinski. Kuklinski's wife received a share of the profits from the Bruno book. Now we get into the supposed other killings that Kuklinski was involved in. So, in various interviews, Kuklinski claimed to have murdered over 100 people. He alleged he used multiple ways to kill people, including a crossbow, ice picks, a bomb attached to a remote-controlled toy, firearms, grenades, as well as cyanide solution spray he considered to be his favourite. He said he committed his first murder at 14 and murdered homeless people for practice. In 2006, Paul Smith, a member of the task force involved in arresting Kuklinski and later supervisor of the Organised Crime Division of the New Jersey Attorney General's Office, said, and I quote, I checked every one of the murders Kuklinski said he committed and not one was true. He added, authorities throughout the county could not corroborate one case based on the tidbits Kuklinski gave, end quote. In 2020, Dominic Polifron said, and I quote, I don't believe he killed 200 people. I don't believe he killed 100 people. I'll go as high as 15, maybe, end quote. Kuklinski also alleged he was a mafia contract killer independently working for all the five families of New York City, as well as the DeCavalcanti family of New Jersey. He claimed he carried out dozens of murders on behalf of Gambino soldier Roy DeMeo. He said he was one of the murderers of Bonanno family boss Carmine Galante in July of 1979, and Gambino boss Paul Castellano in December of 1985. For the Castellano murder, Kuklinski said he was personally recruited by John Gotti ally Sammy Gravano, who instructed him to kill Castellano's driver and bodyguard Thomas Bellotti. He told Philip Carlo he was hired by John Gotti to kidnap, torture, and murder John Favara, the man who accidentally killed Gotti's 12-year-old son Frank after hitting him with his car. After he became a government witness in 1990, Sammy Gravano admitted to planning the murder of Castellano and Bellotti, but said the shooters were all members of John Gotti's crew and were chosen by Gotti. He did not mention Kuklinski. Anthony Bruno felt Kuklinski's participation in the killing of Castellano was highly unlikely. Bruno noted that in 1986, Anthony Indelicato was convicted of Galante's murder and Kuklinski was not mentioned during the trial. According to Jerry Capisi, Philip Carlo claims the Iceman killed Paul Castellano, Carmine Galante and Jimmy Hoffa, along with Roy DeMeo and about 200 others. Come on, do you believe that? I don't know anyone who believes that. No one. End quote. Kuklinski also claimed he dumped bodies in caves in Bucks County 
County, Pennsylvania, and fed victims to rats in the caves. However, in 2013, the Philadelphia Inquirer noted the caves had had lots of visitors since Kuklinski's time, and no human remains have been discovered. Local cave enthusiast Richard Kranzel also queried the idea of flesh-eating rats, saying, and I quote, The only rats I encountered in caves are cave rats, and they are reclusive and shy creatures and definitely not fierce as Kuklinski's claims, end quote. Law enforcement officers also doubt he stored a corpse for two years in a Mr. Softy truck. Now, Kuklinski's murder techniques varied. For example, he said he used a chainsaw to dismember the bodies of victims while they were alive, although this is disputed because he once made a claim that he never used a chainsaw because he didn't want to get his nice shirts bloodstained. While committing a mob-related murder, Kuklinski removed the tongue of a victim and rammed it into his ass to send a message for the mob. Apparently, a business associate was killed because he visited Kuklinski's home without invitation. This other life would interrupt one Christmas Eve. While his family was celebrating the holidays, Kuklinski left his home to collect on a bad debt. Business was business, even on Christmas Eve. The man owed me money. He was giving me a runaround. I told him I wasn't happy that he wasn't going to pay me. He had the attitude that uh, nobody could hurt him. I think he was wrong. Only way he never saw Christmas. What did you use? Uh... A gun. Extremely loud inside of a car. <laughs> Matter of fact, my ears were ringing for a long time. What'd you do afterwards? I walked away, got in my car, and went home. What'd you do when you got home? I put toys together for the kids for Christmas. I saw the broadcast while I was putting the toys together that came down. Mob-related killing. That was the first time I knew I was mob-related. <laughs> How'd you feel? I was annoyed I couldn't get the damn wagon together. Then there was a time while stalking a male victim at a club, Kuklinski poured cyanide into a glass of beer, brushed against him, which caused the cyanide to spill onto the man that eventually killed him. Now, I don't know how cyanide works, so I don't really know if that actually would work. I don't actually know if just spilling cyanide on someone would be enough to kill them. I don't know if it would get into your skin or whatnot, so I don't know how accurate the veracity of that claim is. Inside a crowded nightclub, the hitman plunged a cyanide-laced needle into an unsuspecting victim. When HBO reporter asked what was in the needle, the Iceman soberly responded, in this case, a heart attack. Now to see if a crossbow worked, the Iceman shot a man in the forehead. I just wanted to see if the thing worked, he's alleged to have told the reporter. Kuklinski committed a test murder while walking on the street among a crowd of people when he covered his face with a handkerchief and sprayed a man with cyanide. When the man collapsed and died, people thought he'd had a heart attack. The best effect, Kuklinski described, is to get him in the nose. They inhale it, end quote. On one occasion, Richard Kuklinski recalled preparing to kill a man who was begging and praying for his life. Kuklinski told the man he could have 30 minutes to pray to God to see if God would come and intervene. And I quote, this is what Kuklinski said, but God never showed up and he never changed his circumstances. And that was that. It wasn't too nice. That's one thing. I shouldn't have done that one. I shouldn't have done it that way. Kuklinski has said, end quote. There was a man who was begging and pleading and, uh, and, and praying, I guess. And uh, he was pleased God and all over the place. So I told him he could have a half hour to pray to God, and if God could come down and change the circumstances, he'd have that time. But God never showed up, and he never changed the circumstances. And that was that. It wasn't too nice. That's one thing I shouldn't have done that one. 
I shouldn't have done it that way. It was one of the only times that Kuklinski ever expressed remorse for his actions, and according to a statement Richard Kuklinski once made, a nasal spray bottle filled with cyanide was his favorite way of killing people. It was his kind of trademark. Kuklinski once, actually, this was rather interesting. Kuklinski once talked during an interview about the time he killed a man using cyanide in a nightclub and the death wasn't ruled a murder, and even Kuklinski claimed he had no idea what they pronounced his death as, but it wasn't from cyanide poisoning. I've been in a restaurant where we were eating and the guy went to the bathroom and uh, uh, when I was in the bathroom we put a little boost in his uh, in his food and um, he was rushed to the hospital after that and uh, he died and they buried him I'm not exactly sure what they put on what they attributed his death to but you know it wasn't homicide. Now we come to the murders that he he said that he actually committed, but there's actually no evidence of it. So we're going to get into a bit of a list of the unconfirmed murders that Kuklinski purportedly claimed that he committed. So we start off with we got Robert Prongay. So in interviews and documentaries, Kuklinski says he killed Robert Prongay, a mentor to him. Prongay was murdered in 1984, shot multiple times in the head, and was subsequently discovered in his Mr. Softy ice cream truck. Robbery was not considered a motive at the time, Prongay had been about to go on trial for blowing up the front door of his ex-wife's house. Kuklinski saves that Prongay taught him how to use cyanide and other methods to kill, and it was Prongay who told him to freeze the body of Mazgay. However, Kuklinski says he killed Prongay after he threatened his family. Law enforcement officials have considered Kuklinski a prime suspect in the murder since 1986, but the director of the New Jersey C- Division of Criminal Justice said no charges were sought because Kuklinski was convicted of other crimes. In 1993, in response to his claim, Hudson County prosecutors said new charges against Kuklinski were possible since the Prongay murder was still an open investigation and they would assess whether there was enough evidence to prosecute him. Ultimately, no charges were brought against Kuklinski for the Prongay murder. Then there was the supposed involvement of, of Kuklinski in the murder of Roy DeMeo. So Kuklinski claimed he killed Gambino crime family member Roy DeMeo. Now, DeMeo operated a crew from the Gemini Club in Brooklyn, New York, and according to Jerry Capici's book, Murder machine, DeMeo would kill whoever crossed him or anyone he suspected of being a police informant. The Gemini Club was a grisly playground for murder, and as I understand it, victims were lured to the club at night where they would be shot, a towel wrapped around their blood-soaked head, then stabbed in the heart to stop the blood pumping. Informants told police a crew of killers would often eat pizza and drink beer while the corpse bled out in a bathtub. Using sharp tools, preferably a chainsaw, the gangsters would cut up the bodies for disposal into the incinerator, or they were buried in landfills. Some bodies were taken out to sea, on a private yacht owned by one of the crew members and dumped overboard to feed the sharks. In an interview for the 1993 book The Iceman, The True Story of a Cold-Blooded Killer by Anthony Bruno, Kuklinski described DeMeo as a mentor of his, but after he fell behind on a loan to distribute pornography, he received a beating. The latter two became business partners. Kuklinski says DeMeo taught him how murder for hire could be a way to make money. However, author Jerry Capisci, who has written extensively about DeMeo and the Mafia, doubts Kuklinski killed DeMeo or had close ties to the DeMeo crew. Most sources indicate DeMeo was killed by members of his crew with no suggestion Kuklinski was involved. Kuklinski was not mentioned in Capisci and Gene Mustin's book about the DeMeo crew, Murder Machine, or Albert DeMeo's account of his father's life in the mob, For the Sins of My Father. Philip Carlo, whose biography of Kuklinski indicates the claim that he killed DeMeo, acknowledged in the postscript to a later edition that this claim was probably untrue. By the age of 25, Richard Kuklinski had no problem with murder. 
but now he wanted to get paid for it. There was money in contract killing. To prove himself, he auditioned for Mafia Capo Roy DeMeo. He said, well, I would expect you to, uh, if you came with me, I'd expect you to, uh, if I told you to whack somebody, you'd whack them without any question. So I said, well, I could probably do that. He says, uh, you probably could do it or could you do it? Did you, do you think you could do it? And I said, yeah, I think I could do it. So he told Freddie to get the car, got the car. He and I got in the back seat. Freddie was driving. We drove someplace. I'm, I don't know where it was. It was someplace in New York. And we were sitting there for a while. We got to where we were going. We were sitting there for a while, and a man came in the distance. He was walking his dog, it looked like. So he said, all right, take this guy down. Which, what, which guy are we talking about here? So he says, the man walking the dog. So I got out of the car and I started walking towards the man. The man was walking his dog just like a regular guy. As he passed me, I turned around and shot him. Freddie and Roy pulled up in the car. I got in the car and we drove away. And that is how I got involved with Roy, with doing things like that. Roy DeMeo's hangout was the Gemini Lounge in Brooklyn, New York. It was a house of horrors, where over a hundred people were murdered, chopped up, and disposed of by DeMeo and his gang of lethal contract killers. After proving himself, Kuklinski quickly became one of DeMeo's favorite enforcers. DeMeo ordered the hits, and Kuklinski executed them without question. He wanted this guy uh, taken care of, uh, but he wanted to talk to him first. So uh, when I got to the place, I asked the man for the money, so the guy says he didn't have it and Roy would just have to wait until he got the money to pay him. And that was that, he'd have to wait. I, so I said to the man, I said, well, you have to then talk to him. He wants to talk to you. So I dialed the phone number and uh, he got on the phone and I said, he wants to talk to you. So he was talking to him, and uh, I guess they were acting like everything was all right because he got off the phone, he handed me the phone back. He says, hey, I told you he'd wait. He's in the frame of mind. Don't worry about it. He wants to talk to you now. So I picked up the phone, and he said, kill him. So I shot him. Hung up the phone and walked away. Now we come to probably one of the most interesting of all the murders that Kuklinski supposedly committed, which was the murder of Peter Calabro. So in his 2001 HBO interview, Kuklinski confessed to killing NYPD officer Peter Calabro, who was ambushed and shot dead by an unknown gunman with a shotgun on March 14th of 1980. Calabro was rumored to have mob connections and was investigated for selling confidential information to the Gambino crime family. Investigators have long suspected that Calabro became a target for his role in a gang being no car theft ring that included a group of corrupt city police officers. In the early 80s, the Gambinos were feeling the heat of an intense investigation, which reached as high as their boss, Paul Castellano. As the pressure from law enforcement grew, the family began to worry about potential witnesses. One in particular presented a major problem. His name was Peter Calabro. The family ordered a hit and Kuklinski was given the contract. On March 14, 1980, Kuklinski drove for hours on a snow-covered road in Saddle River, New Jersey, waiting for a call to come through on his walkie-talkie. I get a call that they're on their way, so now they're coming. And it's snowing. Roads are very bad. A lot of snow slipping and sliding. And I was in a van. So what I figured is, at the last moment, I had a, a different plan with it. At the last moment, I decided, well, I'm going to double park this thing. 
This will give me the edge because this will make him have only one way to come by, and that's he has to come right by this van. And I go to the back of the van, and I go out the back door. I take the shotgun with me, of course. So I kneel down, and I look under the van so I can see where he's approximately at. So I watch him come up to where he's almost in the front of the van, and I stood up. And as he's going by the van, I fired. I never knew the man, you know, what he looked like or what his job was. Then I found out the next day that he was uh, police. But had I been told to do him anyway, and I knew he was a police, I most likely would have done it anyway. I don't think I would have said no. Kuklinski had killed a cop, a cop who had gone bad, selling information to the Gambinos, a cop who was eliminated before he could turn state's witness. For Kuklinski, contracts like the Calabro murder were strictly business. They gave him the money he needed for his family. After his death, Calabro, a highly decorated tenure veteran of the force, was one of five officers implicated in a scheme that involved selling phony vehicle identification numbers. During a 1986 trial, a prosecution witness testified that Calabro, who was working for the Queen's Auto Crime Unit at the time of his death, had received up to $3,000 a week for his role in the ring for inside information on police investigations which targeted their operation. Although he did not discuss Calabro's murder, the witness, Frederick D. Nome, said two competing car dealers had been killed after members of the Gabino syndicate suspected they might cooperate with authorities. There's another little wrinkle to the story that no one has ever gotten to the bottom of, although various people have tried. His wife Carmela drowned under mysterious circumstances three years earlier, and members of her family believe Calibro was responsible. Described as a soft-spoken, tender-hearted, attractive woman, Carmela Calibro was found dead in a river by U.S. Coast Guards on July 28th of 1977. Witnesses told police she was last seen walking on the Coney Island beach in Long Reach, New Jersey, with her husband Peter. At the time, his murder was sought by law enforcement officials to be revenge, either carried out or arranged by his dead wife's relatives. Her brothers were regarded as key suspects, but the crime remains unsolved. The Bergen County prosecutor believed Kuklinski's confession to be a fabrication, but his successor decided to proceed with the case. In February of 2003, Kuklinski was charged with Calibro's murder and received another sentence of 30 years. This was considered a waste because it was during multiple life sentences, plus he would be ineligible for parole until he was well over the age of 100. Describing the murder, Kuklinski said he parked his van on the side of a narrow road, forcing other drivers to slow down to pass. He lay in a snowbank behind his van until Calibro came by at 2am, then stepped out and shot him in the head with a sawn-off shotgun, decapitating Calibro. He stated he was unaware that Calibro was a police officer, but said he probably would have murdered him anyway. Kuklinski claimed he was paid to kill Calibro by the Gambino crime family soldier, later underboss Sammy the Bull Gravano, and the Bull provided the murder weapon. Gravano, serving a 20-year sentence in Arizona for drugs, was also indicted for the murder. Kuklinski was set to testify against him. Gravano denied any involvement in Calibro's death and rejected a plea bargain under which he would receive no additional jail time if he confessed to the crime and informed on all his accomplices. The charges against Gravano were dropped after Kuklinski's death in 2006. Then there was the death of Jimmy Hoffa. So, in his 2001 HBO interview, Secrets of a Mafia Hitman, Kuklinski said he knew who killed former Teamsters Union 
Union President Jimmy Hoffa. Now, Hoffa was an American labor union leader who served as a president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, IBT, from 1957 until 1971. From an early age, Hoffa was a union activist and he became an important regional figure with the IBT by his mid-20s. By 1952, he was the national vice president of the IBT and between 1957 and 1971, he was its general president. He secured the first national agreement for Teamsters rates in 1964 with the National Master Freight Agreement. He played a major role in the growth and development of the union, which eventually became the largest by membership in the United States, with just over 2.3 million members at its peak during his terms as its leader. Hoffa became involved with organized crime from the early years of his Teamsters work, a connection that continued until his disappearance in 1975. He was convicted of jury tampering, attempted bribery, conspiracy, and mail and wire fraud in 1964 in two separate trials. He was imprisoned in 1967 and sentenced to 13 years. In mid-1971, he resigned as president of the union as part of an agreement with President Richard Nixon and was released later that year, but Hoffa was barred from union activities until 1980. Hoping to regain support and to return to IBT leadership, he unsuccessfully tried to overturn the order. Hoffa disappeared on July 30th of 1975. He is believed to have been murdered by the mafia and was declared legally dead in 1982. Hoffa's legacy continues to stir debate. Kuklinski did not claim any personal involvement in Hoffa's disappearance and presumed murder and did not identify any culprit. However, he later claimed he killed Hoffa. In his account, Kuklinski was part of a four-man kidnap team. They grabbed Hoffa in Detroit. While they were in the car, Kuklinski killed Hoffa by stabbing him with a large hunting knife. He said he drove Hoffa's corpse from Detroit to a New Jersey junkyard. It was placed in a drum and set on fire, then buried in the junkyard. Later, fearing an accomplice might snitch, the drum was disinterred, placed in the trunk of a car, and compacted to a cube. It was sold along with hundreds of other compacted cars as scrap metal. It was shipped off to Japan to be used in making new cars. Deputy Chief Bob Bunkano, who worked on the Kuklinski case, says they took a body from Detroit, where they have one of the biggest lakes in the world, and drove it all the way back to New Jersey. Come on! Bunkano added, we didn't believe a lot of things he said, end quote. Former FBI Special Agent Robert Garrity stated Kuklinski's admission to killing Hoffa was a hoax, and that Kuklinski was never a suspect in Hoffa's disappearance, adding, and I quote, I never heard of him, end quote. Anthony Bruno said he investigated Kuklinski's alleged involvement in Hoffa's disappearance, but felt his story didn't check out. He appended Kuklinski made the confession to add extra value to his brand, and so he admitted the story for his biography of Kuklinski. Another occasion, Kuklinski claimed that he shot his victims in his Adam's apple after making a bet about how long it would take for him to die. It took a few minutes for him to drown in his own blood, longer than the killer had predicted, leaving him $72 out of pocket. Now we're going to get into a bit about Kuklinski's personal life. So Kuklinski's first marriage was to a woman nine years his senior named Linda, with whom he had two sons, Richard Jr. and David. While Richard was working for a trucking company, he met Barbara Pedrici, who was a secretary at the same firm. Kuklinski and Barbara married in 1961 and had two daughters, American Christian and a son, Dwayne. Barbara described his behavior as alternating between good Richie and bad Richie. Good Richie was a hardworking provider and an affectionate father and loving husband who enjoyed time with his family. Barbara remembered that when Merrick became seriously ill soon after she was born, Richard stayed up night after night to care for her. In contrast, bad Richie, who would appear at irregular intervals, sometimes one day after another, other times not appearing for months, was prone to unpredictable fits of rage, smashing furniture and domestic violence. During these periods, he was physically abusive to his wife, one time breaking her nose and giving her a black eye, and emotionally abusive towards his children. Merrick later recalled that he once killed 
killed her dog right in front of her to punish her for coming home late. Barbara claimed that she once told Richard she wanted to see other people. He responded by silently jabbing her from behind with a hunting knife so sharp she did not even feel the blade go in. He told her that she belonged to him and that if she tried to leave, he would kill her entire family. When Barbara began screaming at him in anger, he throttled her into unconsciousness. Merrick also remembered a number of road rage incidents involving her father. The domestic abuse got so bad that Christian and her mother conjured up a plan to drug his meatloaf with Valium, but they became too terrified to put their plan into action. Quote, he would hit himself in the head so hard you could see the blood vessels popping, Christian said when she described his rage. We had no hope in being saved because the police had been tracking him for so long and they couldn't get him on anything. So how were we supposed to stop him? End quote. Kuklinski's family and Dumont, New Jersey neighbors were never aware of his activities and instead believed he was a successful businessman. Barbara described him as a wholesale distributor and said he employed an accountant. She did suspect that some of his income was from illegal activities due to their lifestyle and the large amounts of cash he often processed. However, she never expressed these worries to him, instead maintaining a don't ask questions philosophy when it came to his business life or associates. If Richard suddenly left the house in the middle of the night, Barbara would never ask where he was going. The Kuklinskis divorced in 1993 when Richard was in prison. Barbara said the divorce was for money reasons, and she continued to visit him in prison, but only about once a year. On June 6th of 1984, Kuklinski filed for personal bankruptcy, listing debts of $160,697 and assets of only $300. In October of 2005, after nearly 18 years in prison, Kuklinski was diagnosed with Kowalski disease, an inflammation of the blood vessels. He was transferred to a secure wing at St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. Although he had asked doctors to make sure they revived him if he developed cardiopulmonary arrest or risk of heart attack, his then former wife Barbara had signed a do not resuscitate order. A week before his death, the hospital called Barbara to ask if she wished to rescind the instruction, but she declined. Kuklinski died at age 70 on March 5th of 2006 at the request of Kuklinski's family. Noted forensic pathologist Michael Baden reviewed his autopsy report. Baden confirmed that Kuklinski died of cardiac arrest and had been suffering with heart disease and filibitus. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. The United States Bullion Depository, often known as Fort Knox, is a fortified vault building located next to the United States Army Post of Fort Knox, Kentucky. 